Amen. If you'll please take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me this afternoon back to Isaiah chapter 9. And we remain this afternoon in verse 6. So our text is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. This afternoon, with the Lord's help, we'll especially consider uh, those two words, wonderful uh, counselor. Whenever a child is born, uh, that is ordinarily accompanied by an announcement. And in that announcement, we are told the name. So if a son or daughter is born, and then the announcement comes out with what the name of the child will be. Now, this, is, this goes all the way back to ancient times. It goes back, we see examples in the Old Testament. You see examples in the New Testament. John the Baptist, when he was born, his name's John. We're told, even with our Lord, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He's given a name which is proclaimed uh, at his birth, and that, that can be traced all the way into the present. So children are born in our congregation, an email goes out, and we all hear the baby's been born This is the name of the child, perhaps how much they weighed or something along those lines. And so recognizing that, you can appreciate the the flow of this text, the way in which it it unfolds, because we're told a child is born, we're told a son is given, and then we're told, and his name shall be. So this is a natural flow that we would anticipate. A child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be. And so we're focused now on that section, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. I don't want us uh, to pass by this uh, Christocentric text with, with kind of a, a quick glance at the revelation that it gives to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are, we're, we're temporarily uh, slowing down in our, our study of, of Isaiah. Why? Well, so that we can stop and gaze on his glory. And that, my friends, is always well worth the time and effort, to stop and gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we seek with the Lord's help to do. And we'll have two more sermons, God willing, before we pass out of this section into verse 8 and what, what follows. And so... Uh, This afternoon, three things. Uh, First of all, the first thing that I would bring to your attention is Christ's name. Christ's name. The the, the text says, uh, and his name shall be called. And we'll treat this very briefly because this is very familiar territory uh, to this this particular uh, congregation. But it's important for at least us to touch on it because it's an introduction to everything else that that follows uh, after it. You know well the significance of a name, the significance of the Lord's name. I mean, this is indelibly imprinted in our minds. Why? Because we go to the summary of the revealed will of God in the moral law 
And there it is, it is condensed to ten words. We're given ten commandments, only ten. And one of those ten commandments is devoted to God's name. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So significant is it. So weighty and important is it. Then you turn to the New Testament. And something by way of parallel is found in the Lord's Prayer. Where the Lord gives us six petitions as a summary of of what prayer entails. And the first petition relates to God's name. Hallowed be thy name. Right there too, up at the front of, of, of the whole list. So we see the significance. We sing in, in Psalm 8, oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We're told in the New Testament that Christ's name will be above every name, that it is name every knee shall bow and every tongue uh, shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God our Father. And so we know the significance of a name. We know that our catechism teaches us well that the, the name of God is shorthand for the full revelation of all that God gives to us of himself. So it refers to not only his names proper, as we might think, but also it refers to his titles and to his attributes, and it refers to his word and his works and his worship and so on, that the, the whole revelation of who God is falls under this concept of his name. Because the name isn't just a label that you hang something on. It actually is a window into who God is. It's a revelation of who the Lord is. His name shows us who who he is. And so Christ is commended to us in this passage for his name. Christ is set forth before us and he's commended to us to, to consider him, because his name is the name which is above every name. Princes and emperors and monarchs make much of their names, don't they? A prince is born, and you end up with you know, Alexander the Great. That's his name. And we have all sorts of examples down through, through history. But here is one whom we saw last week as a prince. He's a king. He's a governor. He's been given a government, but his name is way beyond the reach of any earthly monarch ever born into, into this world. Who gave him the name? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called. Who calls him by his name? Who is it that gives him his name? Children, what would you say in answer to that question? The answer is the Father. Philippians 2, verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. It's the Father who's given him his his name. It's the same thing. It's from the Father that the angel comes and announces in Matthew 1, His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so Christ's name, familiar territory to us, but it's enough to to pique our interest, isn't it? To whet our appetite, to draw out our our minds and our focus and our our affections, to, to draw them out to his name. What is this that the Lord's going to tell us? 
We know it's of great moment. We know that it's of great significance, of great weight. What is it that he's going to tell us? That his name shall be called. Why is our interest piqued? Because we are led to himself. And so this afternoon we are being led again, as with this morning, we're being led to Christ himself and all that follows. So Christ's name. Secondly, wonderful. And his name shall be called wonderful. So we begin here with this first word that is, that is given to us. Uh, the word wonderful means miracle. It means miraculous. It means miraculous one. His name shall be called the miraculous one, if you will. The most wonderful one who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, wonders. Right? Ezekiel, or Exodus 15. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's speaking about something that is supernatural. This one who's being set before us, is setting before us that which is otherworldly, that which is supernatural, beyond the reach of mere creatures, beyond even the comprehension of mere creatures. So that when we come to see and we come to hear and we come to know and we come to understand, in part, something about who the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed, who he is, is revealed in his name, we're, we're recognizing right up front that whatever we know, we know only in part, even when we know the most that can be known. Why? He is the one who is wonderful. He is the, the miraculous one. Now, I know what many of you are thinking at this point. Okay, he's, he's wonderful. His, he is the miraculous one. And you begin in your minds to immediately gravitate toward thinking, um, that's because the Lord Jesus Christ does miracles. And so we open the Gospels, and there he is. He's healing the sick, and he's giving the blind their sight, and he's, and he's raising the dead, and he's you know, delivering those who are possessed of demons and stuff. And so, of course, his name is Wonderful, the Miraculous One, because he's the one who does all these miracles. No, that's not what this passage is saying. That's not where this passage is leading us. Because this is a description of his person. His person is miraculous. It's a description of who he is, not just what he does. Because after all, his disciples did miracles as well. Now, this name is above and beyond merely working miracles, which other men have done by the power of God. This is describing who he is. In his person. How so? Because in this child that is born, in this son that is given, we have one who is the God-man. We have one who is the God-man in one person who is true God and true man in one person. You say, well, okay, we can see that we can follow what, what you're saying, but what's the proof in the text of this? The proof in the text is this. It is addressing his incarnation. Verse 6 is addressing his incarnation. Unto us a child is, is born. Unto us a son is given. The government should be upon his shoulders and so on. And so it's not just speaking of 
the, of, of Christ as God. He is true God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. He is that. But that's not what's being addressed, nor is it referring to him merely as man, merely as uh, merely in terms of his human nature and so on. But it's referring to him as the Word made flesh, as the incarnate Word who has come and tabernacled among us. Think of the language of Hebrews 10, which we'll be coming to in the morning in due course in verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. But a body thou hast prepared me. Here is, this, here is the eternal Son assuming to himself uh, a human nature, and it is astoundingly miraculous. It is so incomprehensible that the angels are, are dazzled by it. The angels can't get their eyes off of him. They can't get their minds off of him. Right? The, the angels are absolutely preoccupied with this unprecedented, glorious miracle that is being set before the eyes of all the universe in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there were lots of miracles that were done prior to Christ's coming. You know that. I mean, you, the first one is what? The Lord created the entire cosmos out of nothing by speaking it into existence. That's a pretty astounding miracle. And you have lots of others throughout the, the Old Testament scriptures, the exodus and the, 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 the parting of the, the waters, the Red Sea, and delivering his people and destroying Pharaoh and his host and so on. Glorious miracle. Well, we have examples of the dead being raised in the Old Testament and other such like miracles. But my friends, this is the greatest miracle. This is the most stupendous, mind-boggling, altogether glorious, the miracle of the incarnation. He is the one who is wonderful. This is the greatest work of all. No wonder, no wonder. As I've told you before, Melanchthon said, Luther meditated upon the incarnation every day. Not a day passed without it. No wonder. Because you can, indeed you will, for all of eternity. Those who are converted will look upon in glory, in sinless beauty. They will look upon the God-man who is glorified in heaven with absolute astonishment. And seeing him who is, who is the God-man and coming to understand the depths of all that he is in the revelation of his glory. Here we have the greatest work of all. It's in the person of the Son of God, in giving the Son, in giving, in a child being born, in the Son that is being given. Here you have the one who himself is the potter, the one who shapes and molds everything, the potter becoming clay. Right? This is, this is amazing. How can this be? The creator assuming to himself the nature of the creature, he who is Lord of all and equal with God, taking on the form of a servant and so on and so forth. I mean, this should be our continual meditation in time as well as into eternity. 
And so the Lord comes to us and he says, this, this child that's born, this, this son that's been given, this one who, who will shoulder the government, his name will be called the miraculous one, the one who is, who is wonderful. Is it any wonder that if you reject him, you must perish? It's unthinkable that there would be anything else. It's inconceivable that anything else would be the case. You reject the one who is wonderful. You will certainly perish and must do so. And so we're to behold his glory as the only begotten of the Father, the one in whom the brightness of the Father's glory is to be seen the fullness of the Godhead, the one who is matchless, the one who is altogether lovely, the one who has all of the, who has the combination of all of the excellencies in their maximum, so that the Lord Jesus Christ has all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily. And, and in him we see all of the wisdom of God and the power of God. And we see in him the holiness and justice and goodness and truth of God. And we see all of these excellencies, none missing, and all to the maximum. It is stupendous. It is beautiful. Think to ourselves, rightly, miracles are rare. Miracles are rare in this world. In terms of the common operations of providence, miracles are the exception. Well, here's the greatest miracle of all, and it stands alone. The incarnation is singular. It is, in the proper use of the word, truly unique. It is truly unique. What are men? Well, they're nothing. They're made of dust. They return to dust. They're creatures. You know, what are glorified saints? Well, they are glorified and therefore glorious. They're perfected in holiness and so on. What are angels? Angels are, they they elect angels, unfallen, sinless, powerful creatures, and so on and so forth. We see all of these things. But what are any of these things in comparison to the one whose name is called Wonderful? Nothing can, can be compared to him. Nothing can ever be compared to him. And if you, if you reach that and you can, you can get that far and say, surely that's true, I can, I, can, I can camp here, I can acknowledge that, then how much less all the things of this world in comparison to him? How is it that, that wealth and power and all the things that the world thinks are wonderful, how can they in any way compete with him who is altogether lovely, who is the one whose name is called Wonderful. Nothing can compete with him. And this is why we have that repeated refrain in the Pentateuch and in the Psalms and prophets and, and so on. There's none we can compare, Lord. You know, we've looked everywhere. We've turned over every rock. We've looked into the most powerful microscopes. We've looked into the most powerful telescopes. We've seen everything and been everywhere. And we've tried to compare everything that there is in the cosmos, not just this world. And we keep bumping into the same conclusion. There's nothing in heaven 
with all the angelic hosts and everything else, there's nothing in earth that can be compared to thee. There's nothing our hearts can desire and crave and pant for and desperately desire to have, die to have beside thee. Thou art alone. The Lord Jesus Christ, whose name is called Wonderful, he alone satisfies the heart. He alone is the object of worship. And of all of our, of all of our adoration. The problem is we, you either have not seen him or you are not seeing him clearly. The unconverted, you have not seen him, not seen him savingly. For the believer, you may not have seen him clearly because to see him clearly, nothing, literally nothing can be compared. Nothing can compete for our affections. Nothing can compete for our lives. Nothing can compete to occupy our minds with him who is called wonderful. And so our eyes are to be drawn above, drawn above above all the things of this world, drawn above to him. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Well, what is the case with you? Are you well pleased with him? God the Father? God the Father says this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Do you join your voice and heart with the Father in honoring the Son in esteeming the Son and being pleased with the Son? Will you hear him? Do you hear him? You think of the language of the Song of Solomon. What is thy beloved more than another? What is thy beloved more than another? Well, sit down and get comfortable. Because when I answer your question and tell you, it's going to take a long time. Because for the believer, our beloved is so much better than any other beloved. That it would fill all the time that we have in this world and all the time we have in eternity to come to lay out all the reasons. His name shall be called Wonderful. He's miraculous. It's miraculous. It's mir- you think really from, from his incarnation, his, his conception, all the way through to his ascension. His ascension as well. The miracle right here. You know, we've, we've often meditated together and from God's word on this. And I'm sure you have more frequently on your own. You know, you, 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 you can picture the, the ascension there. The disciples are on the earth and the Lord with outstretched hands, pronouncing benediction upon them, blessing them. He rises uh, from the earth with his hands still outstretched, blessing them into the clouds and disappears from their sight. But that's not all that there is to be seen. It's his physical, resurrected, and ascended body that's going to be glorified. On the other side of those clouds, he passes into the heavens. And now the angels are prepared to receive him. And one can imagine how the angels part, as it were, as the king of glory comes. Lift up your heads, ye gates, ye everlasting doors. Be lifted up. 
the King of glory, as we sing. He's coming. He's coming. The spirits of just men made perfect who had died before also there. And there he is. They part as he passes. And what happens? The Lord passes through all of the most powerful, glorious, exalted, angelic host. Passes through them and far above them. And the angels once again are absolutely stupefied. This is glorified humanity. This is God made flesh. This is the second person who has been united to a human nature. And they watch as this one who is the God man ascends far above them to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high so that as the Puritan said, human dust sits on the throne of heaven. This is a miracle. His name must be called wonderful. It must be called wonderful. My friends, what's so desperately needed is for you to have him who is wonderful, to have him who is the miraculous one as your full portion, to have him as your portion, to have not only sporadic love, and fleeting love, but enduring love for him alone, to have eyes for him only, to have a heart that is given to him only, to not tolerate other lovers, but him alone. You think of, you know, the most wonderful things in this world. I'm not going to list them. You think for yourself, what are some of the most wonderful things in this world? And I'm not speaking just of physical objects or possessions. Let your mind go. What are some of the most wonderful things in this world? Experiences and things so on. You know what? The most wonderful things in this world, after a while, become common. Repeated exposure to them and so on and so forth, they become common. And so I will use almost, for me, an obnoxious illustration you know, the person gets the new thing. I remember as a kid, they came out with watches. I was a little kid. They came out with watches with a calculator on it. Right? So you have this little calculator on your watch. Phenomenal. It was the rave. It was the rave of, of everyone at the time. Who would have thought, you know, that you would have a calculator on your wrist and so on and so forth. Isn't this wonderful and so on? What do you think today with all the, the latest and greatest, you know, and people get the whatever the new thing is, and it's dazzling and amazing, and I can't believe it, and how do we ever live without this, and this is all they want to talk about, and so on. Guess what? That stuff grows old. Just like the little watch with the calculator on it, right? Super common. Everybody's got them. We've had them forever. No one uses them. It's, this is like, who cares about this? The most wonderful things in the world are just like that. They dwindle in their wonder. Their wonder dwindles. Never, ever, ever is that the case with the child that is born, the son that is unto us has been given, he whose name is called Wonderful. No, it's actually the exact reverse, that when you first see him and you see him savingly and you come to a knowledge of him and you've become acquainted with him and you've beheld him in, in his glory, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's absolutely astounding. There's, there's nothing like it. And yet what happens for, you know, this is the baby believer who, as Peter says, are drinking the sincere milk of the word and who count him precious. It's beautiful. 
But as they go on in, in their Christian life, rather than becoming common and familiar and growing old, it actually increases. So that day by day, Sabbath by Sabbath, year by year, the Lord is showing us more and more of the one whose name is called Wonderful. And the fact is that there's, we see far more than we ever saw before. And given enough time, we'll see far more than we ever saw previous to that. And it, it's as if the, it intensifies in its brightness and its glory and its beauty and its addictive, his addictive attractiveness. And our hearts swell with greater and greater degrees of joy. And of course, that is unending into eternity. The expanse of knowledge of Christ with the expanse, corresponding expanse of joy. To know his love, Paul says, is passes knowledge. To use modern vernacular, it blows your mind. To be able to see something of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, a free love, an unconditional love, a sovereign love, a tender love, an unchanging love, an eternal love. None can plummet the depths of the one whose name has been called Wonderful, the Miraculous One. How reasonable is it, my friends, to receive him? How reasonable it is to welcome him? How reasonable it is to run to him? To one to the, I mean, what would be otherwise the case? How could it be otherwise the case? To run to the one who is truly wonderful in his being, in who he is. In his person. And what what terrible dangers await those who reject the one who is wonderful. Well, that brings us thirdly to counselor. And his name shall be called counselor. When you're reading through the book of wisdom, uh, the book of, of Proverbs, you, you see this coming out in a number of ways, but let me remind you of Proverbs 20, uh, verse 5. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now we're coming to the one who is called Counselor. The one who has limitless depths of counsel and who himself is alone able to draw out that understanding or wisdom. You know, the political figures of this world, princes, prime ministers, kings, whatever, they have counsel usually, right? They'll have in the case of these United States, the president has a cabinet, right? They're, they're, you know, princes have counselors that they, they go to and they, they speak to who investigate things and give them insight and information and whatever else, or so it's supposed to be. We've heard that this is a prince, that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the governor. He's the king. But now we see that he is his own counselor. Unlike those in this world, this prince is his own counselor and stands in need of no other. 
Right? We have, we could go back into eternity. And what's revealed to us with regards to the councils within the Trinity. We can go back to the covenant of redemption, God in himself, entering into covenant, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in order to carry out and accomplish the work of of redemption and so on. The Lord doesn't seek any outside himself. It's all there within the Godhead itself. And so we see even in Christ's incarnation that, that the Lord Jesus tells us, he, he tells us, for example, in, in John 5, that the Father showeth the Son all things that he doeth. The Son knows in his, in his incarnate ministry in this world, he knows all that the Father is doing. Why? Because, to appeal to what I just said in John 1, the one to reveal the Father is the one who has come from the bosom of the Father. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, as the incarnate word, as the son, the child that's born, the son that is given, has this too as in his unique capacity. He himself is the counselor. He himself is. This is why the Bible tells us that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All all of them, not some of them or most of them, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can dupe him. Right? There's, there's nothing that can perplex him. I mean, we see this in so many ways throughout the, um, throughout the prophet Isaiah itself. I'm actually going to skip and not take you, take you through those. But you'll, you'll remember in, in Romans chapter 11, when we were working our way through Lo- Romans, how this comes to the fore at the end of that chapter, that glorious passage where it says in, in Romans chapter 11 and uh, verse 23, where we're told, um, For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. And so he is the one who himself is the counselor. And, and that means that for, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is good news indeed. Because he's the counselor for the church, right? There are all of those around us who, who plot and who plan the ruin of the church. The devil's constantly pursuing it. Wicked men in this world and all their machinations are constantly pursuing it, plotting and planning a ruin and so on. But we have Christ who is the counselor and he unwinds all their mischief. And he causes them to fall into the pits that they've dug for others. And he ultimately crushes the head of Satan himself. And he supplies us with his word. And he says, let me be the counsel. I'll guide and direct. Bring all your cares. Collect them. Mound them up into the greatest pile you can get. And then cast them all upon me. Who careth for thee? Seek help from me. Think of the language of Psalm 25 
in verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Those who walk in the fear of God are given the secret of the Lord, are guided uh, by him. I mean, here is, here is the child born, the son given, and he's, he's given the fullness of the Holy Spirit to dwell upon him. Well, who's the Spirit? Among other things, the Holy Spirit is counselor. Described as counselor. And so the God-man has the Spirit given in fullness to him. How fit he is to conduct us through this evil world. How suitable it is for us to bring all of our perplexing cases to him who is, who is counselor. The Lord Jesus Christ, you know, you, you get into trouble, you go to an attorney, to a, to a lawyer perhaps, to one we call a counselor, legal counsel. You know, here's my case, here's my circumstances. You know, can you help? What would you advise? How can you guide me in the court of law? And so on and so forth. Take that picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our naughty, convoluted, super difficult cases that we find ourselves in. The Lord is saying, bring them to me. Bring them to me. I am the one whose name is as counselor. He's fit to carry us through this fallen world. All of that enmity and opposition we spoke about before, you know, all the pursuits of men, you know, Kings, Psalm 2, they, they plot and plan and conspire to throw off the yoke of, of Christ and so on. All of that is child's play to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's laughable. He laughs. He holds them in derision. All of the mischief that they think, all the power that they feel, and all of the power that others see them to have, it seems as if they have. The Lord says, no, this is child's play to him. He's, an, he's able to rescue his people from evil. He's able to conduct them and bring them to heaven. He's able in the midst of all the storms, and they're real storms that make our knees knock and our teeth chatter and our our stomachs to be filled with butterflies. There are real storms that the Lord orchestrates and brings into our lives, and yet He is the one who created the storm, and He is the one who is in the boat, in the storm, so that He's with His people in the midst of the storm. And He's the one who's able to still the storm, to speak peace to the wind and the waves, and to create a great calm. Don't fear the winds and the waves. Fear him who is unlike any other, who is the God-man, who is the counselor. Exercise faith in him. Resign everything to him. Resign all to him without worry, without, without being anxious for anything. What is, what is worry? Worry is saying that the one who has been called counselor is in fact foolish. When you worry, you call the one who has been named counselor 
foolish. It's in essence what's happening. You're saying he, he, he's, as I was saying this morning, he, he's either not good or he's not wise or he's not powerful. One of those three, given my circumstances. And yet you know that he is good and wise and powerful. And so there should not be these worries. He does all well. Yes, there are mysteries in providence. The counselor conducts things which seem a mystery in providence, which the unbeliever absolutely cannot untangle or understand. But the believer can see. They may not be able to untangle all of the knots of providence, which remain in a measure hidden to us sometimes. But we can see the God of providence. We can see the one who's steering and controlling everything. We can see him. And thereby we can see some of what he's doing in providence. We know that he's gathering glory. We know that he's gathering good to his people. We know that sometimes God's people lose. Right? There's apparent defeat. This doesn't come as a shock. This doesn't come as a surprise. There are, for some it does. So they think, okay, I'm a Christian, and God is for me who can be against me. That's right. And therefore... Everything is going to go as I think. You know, we're going to, we're going to have triumph, we're going to have victory, and we're going to be delivered, and we're going to have things are going to work out well, and it's going to be beautiful, and, and we're going to win these battles that we're fighting. We're going to win those against evil men. We'll triumph because the Lord's with us. There are people who think that way. And while some of the early assumptions were correct that I mentioned, the latter assumptions were incorrect. Because sometimes the Lord brings defeat, apparent defeat to his people. They go into the court case and lose. They go to jail rather than being free. They suffer, even martyrdom. They undergo persecution. They lose a variety of different battles or appear to lose and so on. But that's not all the believer sees. They know that in those apparent losses, the one who is infinitely wise as the counselor is orchestrating what ultimately yields advance and never defeat. At what point with Joseph, in that long list of all of the the, 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 the precipitous falls, is he supposed to draw conclusions? Right? Into the bottom of the pit, he's appearing to lose. Does he, what, does he, what conclusions does he draw there? And then he gets sold into slavery. What now? Goes to Potter's house. Okay, a little, things are looking up a little bit. He's betrayed and lied to. Now he's thrown into a worse pit, into prison. Now what is he to think? And then he, he does a favor for these influential people. Things are looking up again. Maybe he's going to get out. They forget about him. Right? There's all these different steps of apparent defeat. In his case, in this life, he wasn't martyred. You know, there was triumph in the end. And the Lord used him in ways that brought deliverance. Whether that's the case on this side of glory or not, the Lord is still bringing about what is the equivalent in terms of advance for his people. There's never anything random. He's the counselor. There's no, everything is purposeful. The Lord is, is pursuing things with a divine purpose. His understanding is infinite. Ours is minuscule. We see practically nothing. 
in comparison to what he sees. His understanding is infinite. And so we have to trust the one who is the counselor. He makes us weak intentionally so that his power appears through us. He makes us weak intentionally so that we begin to be weaned from the world, despising the things of this world in order to esteem the things of Christ. He orchestrates the twists and turns like Joseph, but he also sees the end. Our problem is that we don't. He's the, he's the infinitely wise counselor. He's the one who has depths, who is able to reach into the infinite depths of divine understanding. He sees the end. We fail to see it. I didn't say we can't see it. Because in a sense, we actually can see it. We know the end. We know that the Lord, though we are like Job in chapter 23, at times we go forward, he's not there. We look to the right hand, we can't see him. On the left hand, we can't see him. But Job says, I know this much, that when he's done, I shall come forth as gold. And so we do know the end. We know ultimately the destiny of the Lord's people. We know ultimately the destiny of the church and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can see in that sense. He not only does well, all things well. He does what is best. He always does what is best. I've said this to you before, no plan B. There's never a plan B with the Lord. Whatever you're getting is the absolute best. If there was something better, that's what you would be getting. The Lord is giving the best according to his infinite wisdom. Therefore, commit everything to him. Commit your way to him. Commit all to him as the one who is counselor. He's the one who gives counsel, who guides us even into glory and eternity. Right? He's the one who shows us the way of peace. He's the one who shows us the narrow gate. He's the one who shows us the narrow path. He's the one who brings us by way of the gospel into eternal glory. And what's more is the whole pilgrimage, all the way along it, every step of the way, he allows us to seek him in small matters. He allows us to seek him in small matters so that not only can we But we should, we should be seeking him as our counselor in the small things. So that all day long, we're having to look to him and ask him, lean upon him, depend upon him, seek wisdom from him, be guided by him all day long. That's why, you you know, all the kids memorize this when they're young. At least I did and I think many of ours do. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding, but in all thy ways, not just the big things, but in the little things, in all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall, he shall direct thy paths. He'll direct them all the way along. He directs us by his word, right? His word is our Counsel, the counsel that he gives to us. The children will remember this, having memorized 
Psalm 119, it's in verse 24. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors, my men of counsel. It's the word of God. He guides us in his providence as well. Psalm 32, verse 8. He guides us by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads us into all truth. He's the one who's guiding us. He's, he is the counselor. And so for that reason, friends, we should renounce all others. That is to say, we should renounce our own native counsel, our own native wisdom, our own understanding, as it says in that Proverbs 3 passage. Not leaning upon our own understanding. We renounce that. We renounce the counsel of the world that's always filling our ears with, with noise, with foolish, empty nonsense. We renounce the counsel of the world in order that we might have him who is the counselor through his word, through his providence, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through others that he's put into our lives who are godly, you know, who also have the word and read providence and have the spirit and who can come alongside us and help us. We're to renounce all others. We're to take ourselves to Christ, not to sin. And we're to bring ourselves to the one who is counselor habitually. That we might have the mind of Christ. That we might thereby know the mind of God. That we would habitually go to him in order to seek, what is the way, Lord? Guide me. Direct my steps. Lead me in the way that thou wouldst have me to go. And being led to stick to our duty, to stick to the path, the will, the way that he's shown us. To recognize that he does provide wisdom to all who ask him. Never upbraiding us, as James 1 says. Always supplying the wisdom that we so desperately need. How so? Why so? Because he himself is the wisdom of God. He is divine wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who, is, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And his name shall be called Counselor. Wonderful Counselor, the miraculous one. And the one who in himself is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable wisdom. May the Lord bring us to this child that is born, this son that is given, the one who shoulders the government. And may we find in him all that our hearts desire. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we come in the name of this one of whom we have heard, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our prayers are brought up through the name of the one who is wonderful, Counselor, who is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. O Lord, grant that we would take to him that we would have and hold him. Grant, O God, that we would see him, worship and adore him, serve and submit to him, 
obey and glorify him by the help of thy Holy Spirit and all to the glory of thine own name. For we ask